after the fact that maybe it was a, a silly thing to devote one week to each of these topics because, um, you know, you get into any topic and it just feels like you could spend s- six weeks or eight weeks there. So anyways, I'm sure it's been um, less than satisfying each week on the, the time we've, we've spent on the topics, but I hope that it's been um, helpful to you. We spent the first several weeks, just a reminder, we spent the first several weeks kind of building that foundation of a Christian worldview and, uh, and then how we apply that worldview in the midst of a secularizing society and as we listen to the news. And then we spent a number of weeks on various sexual issues, um, transgender issues, homosexuality, pornography, sexual harassment. Then some uh, political issues like racism, refugees, immigration. And um, last week we talked about faith and politics. How should our faith inform our politics, shape our politics? And then um, this morning we're talking more about Uh, Religion and government, a slightly different topic, Uh, specifically what uh, religious liberties the government should afford to its citizens. So I wanted to begin by just giving you a little update from my past week, actually. Interestingly, Tom and I were at uh, the Southern Baptist Convention's annual meeting in Dallas this past week. Miguel was there as well, as a matter of fact. And uh, J.D. Greer, uh, who you might know is the pastor of Summit just down the road, um, was elected the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention, which many are kind of seeing as reflective of this of a kind of positive momentum in the convention, both in unity. Uh, so there was like it was like a seventy percent uh, vote in favor of, of Greer, and then also in in just sort of a renewed gospel centered emphasis, things like valuing racial um, harmony, not just ethnic diversity, like we've talked about in this class. And a number of other good um, positive shifts, like, like less political partisanship uh, among Southern Baptists and um, emphasis on complementarity of men and women, um, expanded affirmation of women's gifts in the church, uh, condemnation of the abuse of women that's happening. There's just a bunch of different things that are sort of um, go, you know, going, going together. Uh, in in that vote and in the kind of direction of the convention as a whole. And so there was a lot of positive that came out of the convention. Um, I actually heard the SBC mentioned positively on NPR this week, which I'm sure is a rare occurrence. Uh, But the the convention passed a resolution uh, against some of the border patrol policies that are going on and some, some things, some of the, some of the, immigration stuff and um so anyways it was mentioned positively on npr this week so uh i think we were pleased in many ways with what came out of the convention one point of um one one disappointment was uh the well before i get to that actually um just a reminder i know uh, some of you are probably less familiar with the convention we joined the sbc back in 2011 um with, with kind of limited aims, two specific purposes. One, we're, we're close to Southeastern Seminary, so to kind of steward the proximity and, and that relationship uh, by joining the convention, but also uh, for the advancement of the gospel. You know, our primary reason was actually the, the primary reason for which the, uh, the denomination was founded, which is uh, to pool our funds to send missionaries overseas. And... Uh, 
that that um, you know we we've sent the Purdue's out and we support them substantially. Like sixty seventy percent of their um, support comes from this church, but we can only do that with so many families, and we've wanted to send more out. So like Danny and Lauren Grimm going out wouldn't have been possible apart from. Uh, them being fully funded by the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. And so uh, that, that's a significant reason that we joined. God willing, we'd be sending more families out in the future, and they would be able to go, again, fully funded and, and supported through uh, the International Mission Board. And uh, so we, we remain pleased with those kind of reasons for participating in the denomination and, and even seeing, um, like, at the... Convention. I think there's something like 70, 79, maybe n- new missionaries commissioned uh, by the International Mission Board to go overseas. Uh, so very exciting. That was a highlight for me. Uh, but then I was going to mention one disappointment was uh, this visit from Vice President Mike Pence, which you may have seen uh, show up in the news. <clears throat> and uh, it kind of turned out to be like a 45-minute you know, political platform speech. Uh, in the midst of the convention, a, a, a bit of an odd thing, praising President Trump from all sorts of angles. And uh, evidently Pence had, been invi- had, had not been invited to come do this, but had initiated that offer, and then um, the SBC accepted his request. Now, my, uh, my aunt was, uh, when he was the governor of Indiana, she was his personal assistant for a, a number of years. He, was, he kind of became a family friend. He was at my grandpa's funeral a couple of years ago. He, so personally, I appreciate him very much. And uh, I just say that to say I, th- I think he's a genuine believer and uh, you know, have, have some great respect for him. But I think it still needs to be asked if, asked if a gathering of churches is the right place for a political platform uh, speech uh, like he gave. You know, what might that signal to outside observers? Uh, Might it imply that evangelicals are loyal to the GOP, perhaps even over and against um, their loyalty to the gospel at times, so that, you know, maybe where we should be critiquing uh, certain policies or the administration, instead we're hosting and applauding, you know, one of the uh, party's uh, highest representatives. So Garrett Kell, one of the pastors, uh, said during the convention, by associating publicly with any administration, we send a mixed message to our members suggesting that to be faithful to the gospel, we ought to also align ourselves with a particular administration. So, you know, this is a difficult thing, but while faith and politics are inseparable, you know, our, our faith should shape our politics, on the other hand, there is a sense in which religion and government um, are in, operate in separate spheres. They have separate jurisdictions so that, practice, practically speaking, a Christian assembly should be addressed, by, for example, by a, a pastor, but probably not by a politician, um, especially giving a, a platform speech. You, know, you, you could envision a politician being an elder in his church, uh, being a faithful Christian and preaching in his church and kind of leaving aside some of that political identity. Um, and you could envision that being an appropriate opportunity, but, to, but for the church as a whole to become almost an extension of uh, political activism seems inappropriate. In fact, when, uh, the, when running for president, George W. Bush, it's a little further back, um, attended a funeral for 12 college students who had been killed by a bonfire, and he was asked to speak, and here's what he said. No, this is not a place or moment for political positioning, but a place 
and, and time for worship. I'll sit in the pew like everyone else and worship and pray. And I think the principle that he applied in that situation is generally true, that, that Christian gatherings are, are not a place for uh, political platforms. In fact, at the convention, it was interesting, many motions were, were made to keep Pence's visit from happening. Well, those were unsuccessful, but it, it seems unlikely, you know, given kind of the momentum and direction of the convention, that something like that would, be, uh, would happen again in the future. But I think um, the divide among Southern Baptists that was evident at the convention is uh, somewhat reflective of a divide between traditional conservative culture warrior way of viewing things and, uh, and then approaching religion and government differently. I think a more biblical approach that understands uh, religion and government to be operating in two uh, distinct spheres, both designated by God. Not, not that we should separate our faith and our po- uh, from our politics, um, but that we should be careful to avoid these divided allegiances in regard to uh, gospel and political parties, both in our hearts as well as in appearances. Um, so anyways, we talked about faith and politics last week, We're talking about government and religion this week. So I just thought, you know, there, there's an example of a, a convention as a whole kind of working through one manifestation of some of the questions raised uh, by these issues. As, as a church, we want to be defined by the gospel of Jesus and not by political allegiances. Um, and so that's, you know, I think that's the primary thing that we're asking. And, okay, how can, how can we demonstrate that gospel allegiance over and above any political allegiances we may have? Anyways, um, that has a little bit to do with what we're going to talk about this morning. But we're actually on the topic of religious liberty. So... Uh, This is about the relationship between religion and government. So given God's purposes for government, which we discussed last week as being rooted especially in Genesis 9, uh, this commission to Noah and his family just after the flood, uh, sort of a recommission actually to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and have dominion. And then it says that God will require a reckoning for those who take the life of a man by man, his, his blood shall be shed. And uh, you see in that passage in Genesis 9 two purposes that God has for government. One, to render judgment for the sake of justice. Um, That's the idea of the reckoning. You know, there's this principle of retributive justice. If someone takes another's life, his life should be taken by man. Uh, So there's rendering judgment for the sake of justice. And then a second purpose is to build platforms for flourishing and peace. So that's kind of the positive purpose and direction of government. In Genesis 9, again, the, uh, the commission is really a positive one, to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion. Um, and, and that is the context in which um, that judgment for the sake of justice is, is given. So these, these two broad purposes that God gives for uh, the organization of humanity known as government um, so in that context, then, what is the government's role in matters of religion? And what freedom should a government uh, afford to its citizens in regards to religion? Does the Bible even address this issue? So we begin, then, um, by trying to describe the crisis that we find ourselves in in the United States in 2018. Religious liberty is uh, in crisis. So how should we describe this crisis? 
while religious liberty can be defined as the freedom for all people to live out their faith according to their deepest convictions. The freedom for all people to live out their faith according to their deepest convictions. Unhindered worship according to the dictates of one's conscience. That's religious liberty. And we're seeing a variety of challenges to religious liberty in the U.S. today, but many of those challenges are showing up in regards to sexual issues. So back in 2012, PRRI and the Religion News Service reported a survey that uh, most who thought religious liberty was being threatened, which many did not, but of those who did think religious liberty was being threatened, most of them uh, described that threat as removing religion from the public square. So you might think of things like removing prayer from public schools or removing the Ten Commandments from public grounds. Um, but only 4% who considered religious liberty to be threatened uh, even considered sexual issues at all to be a threat to religious liberty. But the threat has expanded way beyond removal of religion. In 2018, <clears throat> six years uh, after that uh, survey, uh, the threat is now, in one sense, greater and, uh, and really has been relocated to the variety of sexual issues that our society is talking about. So that Al Mohler uh, frames the great challenge to religious liberty as the increasing view that sexual freedom demands freedom from criticism. Uh, it has to be free from critique. Our sexual freedoms must be free from critique. And, and that's so valuable that it warrants infringements of um, religious liberty. So Moeller calls this the battle between erotic liberty and religious liberty, civil rights and sexual rights and, and religious rights. Um, so quoting Moeller here, he says, the religious liberty challenge we now face consigns every believer, every religious institution, and every congregation in the arena of conflict where erotic liberty and religious liberty now crash. So they're basically holding, holding, um, holding to uh, an orthodox Christian understanding of sexual morality is being framed as bigotry. And any exercise of conscience on the basis of that sexual ethic, a Christian sexual ethic, uh, these practices that should be really protected by um, religious liberty are also considered bigotry. So uh, as you can see in this picture, uh, where it says bigotry, disguised as religious liberty, is still bigotry. Um, so this is the way religious liberty is, is being framed. Uh, ben Sass cited a study in which nearly half of all Americans under age 35, so that would be millennials, my generation, beloved millennials, uh, believe that the First Amendment is actually dangerous. Um, so to many Americans, religious liberty has become this euphemism for, for bigotry, for hatred. They see it as um, the refuge of the pious who use their religious views as another form of identity politics. Less than two years ago, in September of 2016, the chairman of the U.S. Uh, Commission on Civil Rights wrote disdainfully that the phrases religious liberty and religious freedom will stand for nothing except hypocrisy so long as they remain code words for discrimination, intolerance, racism, sexism, homophobia, Islamophobia, Christian supremacy, or any other form of intolerance. So you can see in these statements, you know, that rather than seeing um, religious liberty as, as a fundamental freedom to be recognized, 
um, religious liberty is being portrayed as a privilege that can be taken away as if can be taken away if you disagree with kind of the reigning secular orthodoxy on on matters such as LGBT issues. On the other hand, uh, two weeks ago, uh, June 4th, there was an important, someone called it important but limited, uh, win for religious liberty at the Supreme Court, which you may have heard about in the case of Jack Phillips, the Kate Baker from Colorado. In 2012, he told a same-sex couple that he couldn't... um, bake a cake for their wedding, design a cake for their wedding because of his Christian convictions. And the Colorado Civil Rights Commission claimed that Phillips had violated the um, Colorado Anti-Discrimination Act, which prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation in a place of business engaged in sales to the public and offering services to the public. Um, Nevertheless, the actions of the... um, well, the Supreme, so the Supreme Court decided in favor of Jack Phillips and his right uh, not to bake that cake over and against um, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. Um, so that, that's an important win. There, there were a variety of reasons that the justices gave for taking that, not, not all of them um, you know, that, that we would be excited about. Uh, Neil Gorsuch, maybe the most conservative, uh, penned a concurring opinion uh, stating kind of or spelling out a more robust uh, defense of religious liberty Uh, but that's not necessarily the rationale that all the judges took so that's why someone said it's an important but limited uh, win for religious liberty nevertheless uh, despite that win you know the the position of the Colorado Civil Rights Commission in coming against Jack Phillips represents sort of a tidal wave of antagonism toward religious liberty that's being taken against those who hold orthodox Christian views on matters of sexuality again PRRI um, uh, Public Religion Research Institute, I think that is, released a study that found um, 60% of Americans oppose allowing a small business owner in their state to refuse service to gay or lesbian people if doing so would violate their religious beliefs. Um, So that means that if the Supreme Court decision had been decided by the populace, Jack Phillips would have lost, uh, not won. So in this case... Um, the population demonstrates uh, greater secularism than the Supreme Court did. Um, One in three Americans, they say, support such a policy. Opposition to service refusals, what Jack Phillips did, is so widespread that close to half of Americans who oppose same-sex marriage are against allowing religiously-based service refusals. So even among those who oppose same-sex marriage, about half of them would, would reject Jack Phillips' right to refuse service. Uh, in, in other words, there's just that if, if you consider that a threat to religious liberty, an infringement upon you know, Jack Phillips in this case, his religious liberty, um, the, the number of people who would allow for that religious liberty are in, in a uh, decreasing minority. Nancy Percy then summarizes some of the effects we've already seen. She says, those who resist the secular moral revolution have lost jobs, businesses, teaching positions. Others have been kicked out of graduate school programs, lost the right to be foster parents, have been forced to shut down adoption centers, lost their status as campus organizations, and the list of repression is likely to grow. So in light of this crisis, you know, and you, you could go on, ex, you know, extend the number of examples we give that I'm sure many of you are familiar with, but 
in light of this sort of crisis that we're in, how do we think about religious liberty from a biblical worldview, which is really what we're attempting to do with each of these topics, is just kind of put them on the map in terms of uh, the biblical storyline in a Christian worldview. It's slightly tricky to put religious liberty um, on the map of a biblical storyline. In fact, people explain religious liberty from the Bible in a variety of ways, and that's because there's no single place in Scripture uh, where this issue is addressed. You know, thou shalt not infringe your fellow citizens' religious sensibilities. Uh, That verse just isn't in the Bible. Um, So then, is the idea of religious liberty even biblical? I think it is, and we can explain that in a number of ways. So we'll begin with creation. At creation, the image of God was embedded in us. God hardwired us with what uh, John Calvin called the sensus divinitatis, a sense of the divine. And then as Paul reflects on creation and uh, human rejection of God in Romans 1 and 2, he says, this is Romans 1.19, that what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. So not only is God evident in creation, uh, but God has uh, written evidence of himself on our hearts. So then in chapter 2, Paul says, uh, this is Romans 2.14. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience bears witness. In other words, they show that, that God's law is not something alien imposed on us from without, but it's, it's actually woven into the very fabric of creation. It's part of who we are. It's written on the heart. Um, there's, some, as, as one person put it, there's something, um, oh, this is from the message, uh, kind of loose paraphrase of the Bible by Eugene Peterson. He says, there's something deep within them that echoes God's yes and no, right and wrong. There's something within us that echoes uh, God's, uh, God's morality. And this, this is what the Bible calls the conscience. Um, so from creation and despite the fall, because of the image of God in us, We are directly accountable to God, our creator. And this means that in regards to fellowship with God, every human being is accountable to him and at the same time not accountable to human governments. So the Manhattan Declaration on uh, uh, the conscience, it actually addresses a variety of issues. But um, anyways, the Manhattan Declaration says, Christians confess that God alone is Lord of the conscience. Immunity from religious coercion is the cornerstone of an unconstrained conscience. So freedom of religion is really freedom of conscience. And the jurisdiction of government is proscribed. It's limited by scripture, and it doesn't include the responsibility or freedom to constrain belief in the God of the Bible. As one person said, compulsion is not even an attribute of God. It certainly cannot be an attribute of government toward God. Uh, The purposes of government, rather, as we said, are to render judgment for the sake of justice and to build platforms for peace and flourishing. Um, And so compelling uh, religious belief is not among those things. Uh, So religious liberty then, liberty of conscience, freedom of conscience, 
is a fundamental human right to be recognized by government, not a privilege that's granted to us by government. It's not just a privilege for those who agree um, with the government. But because of fallen um, sinful dynamics in humanity, uh, governments are always self-aggrandizing. Just like individuals are always um, selfish at the core, governments are always self-aggrandizing, seeking more and more power for themselves. And one of the powers that governments have always sought to take for themselves is the power to constrain the consciences of their citizens. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar sought to constrain the uh, worship of the Babylonians as well as the Jewish exiles. I'm sure you remember that story where he builds a statue of himself and compels uh, bowing down before it. And Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down to the golden image. And, uh, you know, so governments have, have always sought to take this kind of power to themselves. And so whether to compel a certain belief or religious practice or to restrain uh, belief and religious practice, the, these are powers that are withheld from government by God. They are not granted to government. These are not purposes for which government exists. So as Abraham Kuyper uh, put it, the government must occupy its own place on its own route among all the other trees of the forest and thus it has to honor and maintain every form of life which grows independently in its own sacred autonomy. In other words, worship and government exist by God's design in two distinct spheres. Not that they're unrelated, but they are distinct spheres. And government has to operate within its own jurisdiction. So the government has to work to avoid becoming this sort of octopus um, that wraps its tentacles around its citizens in every sphere of life, even those over which the government has no God-given jurisdiction. Um, and then for, for redeemed people, um, you know, we, we, as redeemed people, we live with consciences informed by Scripture, which, as we said last week, will mean that you know, there, there, are times, um, there, there are times where we should be prepared to disobey human governments or authorities uh, with consciences constrained by Scripture and not by human governments. And this is maybe the closest we come in Scripture to the idea of religious liberty. Uh, So the very denial of absolute power to governments implies that liberty must be given in those cases where conscience guided by faith in the Scriptures uh, leads in a different direction. So when Jesus said, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's and to God that which is God's, he's actually limiting the role of government or assigning to it a particular role. Uh, give him your money, honor the emperor, but fear God. Never give the emperor your ultimate allegiance. Never render to Caesar that which is God's. Um, so while scripture doesn't directly address religious liberty, it does address the conscience and indicates that every person's conscience is accountable to God and his word. And that's why, for example, Peter says in Acts 5, uh, we ought to obey God, we must obey God rather than man. And we may find ourselves saying something very similar to that. So this means that for Christians, um, we should resist uh, the government where it constrains any kind of activity, belief, um, or, or prohibits activity or belief that, that God commands and compels. At the same time, it means that as Christians, we should 
resist any urge to enforce Christianity through the apparatus of the state. You know, we, we don't want to compel government to operate uh, as the church should. You know, so this is something Christians have historically sometimes tried to do, and often with tragic results. In fact, Russell Moore says, we can define religious liberty as a refusal to fight spiritual battles with earthly weapons or tactics. Tactics. We're not seeking to use the government as an extension of the church, uh, but uh, nor should the government impose or infringe upon uh, the freedom of Christians or any other religious group uh, to worship. And then finally, restoration. As we, so as we study through Revelation on Wednesday nights, um, we're, you know, seeing kind of the end of all things vividly portrayed in, in Revelation. I was reminded this past week of that passage in Revelation 6 where the fifth seal is open and John tells us what he saw. He says, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne, and they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. This is pretty typical of the New Testament vision of the relationship between church and government. Uh, The New Testament envisions uh, oppression of Christians uh, by the state, uh, often to the point of persecution and martyrdom, as the norm until Jesus returns and sets it all straight. You know, this, this is what Christians should expect. So living outside of that norm of persecution and infringement of liberties and even martyrdom uh, you know, is, is almost an anomaly to how um, the, the New Testament envisions the Christians' kind of interaction with the state. Uh, this, this warns us to be... Um, cautious over our expectations of government. We realize government exists as an institution of fallen people in a fallen world and will often take powers that it doesn't deserve. And so, you know, while we can work for the protection of religious liberty and in a democracy, God has actually given us a a necessary stewardship of working for religious liberty. At the same time, we don't put all of our hope in government because our hope should already be attached to Jesus Christ and his government. Now, Hebrews tells us at present we don't yet see everything in subjection to him, but everything will be in subjection to him. And we will see that on the day when he returns and establishes establishes his kingdom finally and fully. And that's what we're hoping in. So this is a tricky tension for Christians, that we live as free people, um, yet we live under fallen governments. So we are impacted often negatively uh, by governments, by restrictions of freedom. In our current context, we can actually work against that. But we can never allow our working against that to turn into a panic or alarmism over what's going on. You know, it always has to be carried out with this steady hope in remembering the end of all things, that God establishes his kingdom. So one author said, when we proclaim that Jesus rose from the dead and will one day return to consummate his kingdom, that is a political message. And that should shape our, our political um, attitudes. So then what are some ways that we can live out this, this biblical idea of religious liberty, our consciences accountable to God and not to governments? 
Um, well, religious liberty in, in our case is not only biblical, but it's also constitutional. So in the U.S., we live under the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, and the first 16 words of the first uh, amendment are, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohib- prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Um, so those 16 words are a fair reflection of government restraining itself to the sphere that God's allotted to it. But how do we, uh, how do we live out this first freedom? You know, if we have the, the, the right freedom in our context for free exercise of religion, how do we live that out? Well, here's a few, few ideas. One is to prepare for the infringements of liberty. Um, so you can prepare for infringements of liberty simply by, by being thoughtful over religious liberty, taking time to understand it, its roots in biblical teaching uh, and, uh, about the conscience, uh, taking time to understand the practice and, and, uh, and, and defense of religious liberty historically. Um, so maybe take a few minutes to read through um, the, the excerpt from the Manhattan Declaration that I've put on the back of your handout. So the Manhattan Declaration is about, I think it's abortion, marriage, and Christian liberty, um, Christian conscience. Uh, so I've just excerpted that portion, that third portion of it, and put it there on the back of your handouts. Um, take time to read through that and think about uh, the nature of religious liberty. You know, a, t- a time is coming... Uh, where these we may find increasing infringements to our religious liberty. We can defend it thoughtfully and articulately to the, to the extent that we've already thought through the Bible's teaching on this practice, maybe even considered uh, its, its rootings in, in American society. And uh, so there are some good books there on your handout that you can read as well. And, and thinking through this issue would be a good way of preparing for infringements of liberty, especially as they may arise in your given uh, context or career or whatever. And then secondly, working for the protection of liberty. Uh, Working for the protection of liberty. Again, in a democracy, we all bear some stewardship, however small it may be, in working to protect those aspects of government and politics that, um, that we believe are right and good. So I love how Richard Mao puts this. He says, in modern democracies, the power of national leaders is derived from the populace, which is the primary locus of God-given authority in a democracy. Built into the very process, then, is the possibility of review, debate, re-examination, election, and defeat. Given such a framework, for Christians simply to acquiesce in a present policy is to fail to respect the governing authorities. In other words, non-acquiescence, pushing back, you know, Christians collectively kind of pooling their efforts in something like the Alliance Defending Freedom or something like that um, is one way of actually respecting the authorities that may be infringing on religious liberty um, in, in, in the context of a democracy. And so the most routine, the most routine way uh, that most of us will do this, obviously, is through uh, voting on Election Day, you know, working to put those into office who... Uh, will be protecting re- religious liberty or at least factoring religious liberty into um, your decisions on Election Day um, among the variety of issues that uh, should be taken into account. 
And then for some Christians, it will also mean uh, more directly working in government or some kind of think tanks or policy organizations for uh, the protection of religious liberty. And then third, don't fear the threat of government. So again, this is that tricky tension, you know, where we do work for the protection of religious liberty and yet don't (laughs) fear where there may be infringements of it. There's no place for um, fearing, alarmism, panic. And the, the most frequent command in Scripture is do not fear. Uh, and we should certainly apply that to our, our thoughts and feelings about government and infringement of religious liberties. We'll say there's a lot of um, rhetoric in the broad Christian community that almost uh, provokes fear and alarmism. That is the kind of stuff we should not really devote much attention to or devote our minds to. And then fourth, witness to the reality of the gospel. Uh, Religious liberty is the basis of our freedom to share the gospel. So one way that we exercise religious liberty is by witnessing to Jesus Christ in all the context that he has put us in. Uh, In 1 Timothy 2, uh, Paul is telling Timothy how the congregation should um, behave itself when they gather together. Uh, I'm writing to you so that you know how to behave yourself in the household of God. This is what we should do when we gather as a family. The first thing that he says in 1 Timothy 2 is that people should pray together. And when they, should, when they pray, they should pray for kings and those who are in authority, specifically so that you can lead lives uh, that are peaceful and flourishing. So that, there you see a hint again, or an affirmation at least, of God's purpose for government. And then the peace and flourishing is not just for our own comfort, but specifically so that the gospel can go forward. So listen to how he says this to Timothy. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus." who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So you can see how he's kind of stacking those ideas on top of one another. Uh, when you gather, pray. When you pray, pray for those who are in authority. When you pray for those who are in authority, pray that they would uh, make decisions and structure government in such a way that we can lead, lead quiet and dignified lives, godly in every way. Specifically so that the gospel... Uh, which is the only hope for salvation, can be preached and more people can come to knowledge of the truth. So that we, as it turns out then, exercise our first, um, our first freedom, the, the First Amendment, our religious liberty, by speaking freely of Jesus in all the places that he's put us. So that concludes religious liberty. I, I do want to say that um, you know all these topics that we've covered... Um, are matters of Christian discipleship, including religious liberty. You know, these are all matters of try, trying to follow Jesus in the context that we're, we're in. And so we, we want to think carefully and communally about these topics because they all shape our obedience to and our, our fellowship uh, with Jesus. So we want to think carefully, which is really all I've been trying to do is be somewhat suggestive in how to take you know a variety of topics, talking points that are current to us, and how to sort of locate them in the biblical storyline. 
So we want to think carefully and biblically about them, but also thinking communally uh, together with other brothers and sisters. So I Again, I, I've said this several times, but I would encourage you, if, you know, if, as you review all these topics and, and um, as we've been going through this class and, and talking about them, I, I want to make sure that the church is a place where we can discuss these things in a gracious and humble way. That if you're personally struggling with one of these topics, you feel like you can reach out and find help. Um, and that if you're only trying to think carefully about these topics, that you know you, you're free to engage even with those you may disagree with. Um, and and in that regard, if you disagree with anything I've said in the class, I would, I would love to hear from you and uh, and talk and talk with you about it. And I hope I can promise you it would be civil disagreement, um, at least from my end.